Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman, director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, and here with me, as always, is Chris Beam, the managing director of the Institute. And today we're recording our first podcast of Democracy Works. And yet I'm as always, which is kind of hard to do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking ahead, Chris. I'm looking ahead. What does it mean to protest in a democracy? What, what does what is the role of protest in a democracy? Right, and and how is it that some protests are successful, uh, some wither and die, and some are most people regard as having crossed a line, and um, how do we figure those questions in the abstract, and then how do we ask those questions about an an act, a protest? that took place by athletes in a stadium with 100,000 people watching. Right. So we're going to talk today with uh, Abe Kahn. And uh, Abe, new faculty member at Penn State who teaches about the relationship between sports and politics. Uh, And these sports protests, the NFL protests, have been very dramatic, have been very partisan, have uh, generated a lot of tension. And a lot of attention. And and I find I'm reminded when I think about these protests about uh, something Martin Luther King wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail when he said there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. And it's that emphasis on the tension that I, I find really intriguing here because these protests geared as they are towards the national anthem, uh, towards the flag, uh, really do make many people very, very uncomfortable. Right. They don't like it. And what, um, what King says, you're not supposed to like it. No. That's the whole point. Right. And it's appropriate that we're talking about King here, not only because of this whole issue of the tension that's created, but also because one thing that I think has been lost as this, as the protests have become politicized in a partisan sort of way, is that um, they initially were geared towards what many would consider one of the great civil rights issues of our time, and that is the unequal treatment in the hands of the criminal justice system of white and black Americans. Right. And so the these Colin Kaepernick's first protests took place really before the campaign was even an issue, and it wasn't it had nothing to do with. Donald Trump or, or it, for that matter, um, the, the military. It was, it was a reaction to things that had gone on in Ferguson, Missouri and other places, uh, and it was about police violence directed against African Americans. Well, you know, we've been uh, we've been polling all year at the McCourtney Institute and mood uh, of the nation poll, the mood of the nation poll. And we uh, we ask people in their own words to tell us what it is about politics that makes them angry and proud and that gives them hope and, and pride. And protests of all type have come up repeatedly in the poll. It's been a, it's been something that comes up across the four emotions mm-hmm. in that. Uh, it makes protests have really angered many people, largely supporters of Donald Trump, who see it as a kind of way of uh, not really recognizing it as a as a real part of as a legitimate part in itself of American politics. 
And I mean, it reminds me of something else that's in the letter from Martin Luther King, where where he also talks about the importance of protesting at an experiential level. And, and that's to say he talks about how it's important for people to protest. And of course, at this time, he's talking about people who are living entirely as second class citizens, mm-hmm. but that it's important for them for their own soul and for their own for their own sense of being and in order to feel engaged and to feel like they're doing something. Right. And so protest in a democracy really does play that kind of role, too. I mean, there's a social aspect to it. There is a there is a sense of belonging. And of course, and, and I'm sure uh, Abel talked to this, uh, the fact that you're doing it at an NFL game, which is probably the most conservative among among yeah. the most conservative sports audiences you can get, mm-hmm. adds to the power. I think that's right, and it yeah. also adds to the the the, the consternation right. that a lot of people feel about it, uh, because there's just this this you know kind of symbiotic relationship in America between the military and sports, yeah. and the idea that you can um, separate this out is is really problematic, um, but. In any case, I mean, I think it would be good to bring in um, our interview and, and hear what Abe has to say. And um, the, our interviewer is uh, Jenna Spinelli, who's also with the, uh, the McCourtney Institute. She's our communication specialist, and uh, she's going to do the interview with Abe. You want to call her our correspondent at large? That's, I think that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, she, gets, she doesn't get any more money for that, but, right. but it's, a, it's a good title. <laughs> All right, let's turn it over to Jenna. So we're here with Abe Khan. Abe, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So I, this is our, our first episode that, that we're recording, and um, I'm taking solace in the fact that we are going to have at least one dedicated listener of this podcast. You want to take a minute to um, acknowledge said listener? Hi, Mom. <laughs> hey, Abe's mom. We love you. Thank you for listening. All right, so let's let's get started here. Um, I think it is fair to say that we live in Twitter-adjusted time these days. I can barely remember what happened last week, let alone you know two and a half years ago. So um, can you maybe start off by helping us remember um, how everything got started with Colin Kaepernick and then where um, these issues have, have gone from there? Absolutely. By the way, I love the phrase Twitter-adjusted time. <laughs> it's it's going to be easy for me to incorporate that in my uh vocabulary going forward. So thank you for that. Kaepernick's first kneel came at the end of August in 2016. It was actually at the end of a preseason football game. Um, And it it actually didn't start as a kneel. He was just sort of sitting by himself on the sideline while the rest of the team was standing for the anthem. Uh, And then he was asked about it during a press conference, and he gave a very long press conference. And it wasn't really like a a set-up press conference. It was just the reporters with with the microphones in his face after the after the game. Um, and he spoke to reporters earnestly um, in a way that you sort of rarely hear from athletes. He was willing to talk and willing to speak his mind, and he did so for as long as the reporters were asking questions. Uh, and he used two phrases that came, at least in my mind, to define the substance of the protest. One is bodies in the street, and the other is people getting away with murder. And so it was clear from the very beginning that what he was talking about was both the problem of pervasive racist police violence and the lack of police accountability. And I think it's important to keep that in mind in understanding how and why the protests spread. In many ways, Kaepernick's protest was primed 
by uh, pre-existing culture of activism. Kaepernick was a bit of a spark. I like to think of Kaepernick as a kind of ignition point that produced a broad cultural spectacle. Uh, and so I remember I, I, I said at first that he didn't kneel in the very beginning. In fact, he was just sitting there on the sideline. Um, and Nate Boyer, who had played briefly for the Seattle Seahawks, he was an ex-Green Beret, he actually wrote an open letter about Kaepernick's, uh, Kaepernick's protest in the Army Times. He said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said essentially something along the lines of, I don't like the disrespect for the flag, but I'm ready to listen to you. Um, and that led to a meetup between Boyer and Kaepernick uh, and a conversation. And Boyer basically said, try kneeling instead. The whole idea of the kneel having a specific meaning got lost in a kind of nationalist and militaristic fog. Um, there were old and predictable scripts that just got rehashed about the virtues of military service. And this primarily served as a mode of deflection so that we didn't have to talk about the problem of police violence. We didn't have to talk about the lack of police accountability. And we could just sit here and have this sort of screeching debate about um, militarism and nationalism. How did the protests spread after Kaepernick's initial demonstration? So I'll admit to being a bit surprised about how quickly the Kaepernick situation spread. But the number of athletes who were protesting included 48 NFL players, eight NBA teams, 14 WNBA players, including the entire squad of the Minnesota Lynx, a gold medal swimmer, 45 high school teams, 22 colleges, a middle school, a, and a youth football team in Beaumont, Texas. And this all happened across 34 states and four countries. And so you're, you're talking about a span of three, three and a half weeks, right, where suddenly there was this explosion of, of protest speech. There were still a handful of athletes who were trying to express themselves in protest uh, when the 2017 football started, uh, but then Trump revived the question. And so how did uh, Donald Trump insert himself into this situation and, and revive the question? Trump's broad political strategy just generally speaking, for now two and a half years, has been to fight a culture war to secure his foundation of support. So in a sense, uh, attacking Colin Kaepernick is the easiest way to fight that culture war, especially because it links white racial resentment to the kind of class resentment that made Trump's quote-unquote populism so seductive. And finally, to, to wrap up this section about the, the history of, of the protest, where do things stand now? Um, one thing that emerged immediately after this was, of course, a huge outrage, especially among NFL players. Uh, and so the Players Coalition, the Players Coalition had been a thing, but it became super active. But where we're at is a split, essentially, within the Players Coalition, because I think that the NFL saw the Players Coalition as an opportunity to co-opt the force of, of the protests. So Eric Reed, uh, who's one of the players who's kneeling alongside Kaepernick, one of the first players kneeling along, alongside Kaepernick in 2016, and Michael Thomas, who's a, a wide receiver for the um, Miami Dolphins, basically left the Players Coalition once the NFL offered them $100 million. And it, they didn't exactly offer the organization $100 million. They promised to spend $100 million promoting an agenda of criminal justice reform. And I think for Reed and for Michael Thomas um, and for Michael Bennett, right, who plays for the Seattle Seahawks, they see this as essentially a bribe, right? It's uh, stop kneeling, stop protesting, and we'll try to throw some money at uh, the criminal justice reform. And it's not just a, the issue of the bribe. I think that there's real concern among the more uh, radicalized players um, over who ultimately will control the money and how it'll get spent. Malcolm Jenkins is on the other side of it, right? Malcolm Jenkins is uh, among those who are um, 
pleased that the NFL is willing to spend this money and see it as a very sort of tangible kind of tangible effort at social change. And so I think that's where we're at. Um, it's an old story, really, for social movements. It's the contrary pressures of reformers on one side and revolutionaries on the other. Right. And you really can't find a social movement, at least in 20th century history, mm-hmm. right, that doesn't face that kind of internal tension. Right. Yeah. Let's talk some more about that NFL culture. Sports is kind of the one like nonpartisan yeah. place in our, our in our society. The problem is is that all of the political space in sport had been consumed by simplistic and idealized images of the nation, especially in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, so there's been patriotic symbolism in sports forever, whether it's the national anthem or military flyovers, right? Um, you have this sort of cocktail of nationalism and militarism that has always accompanied sport. And I think that's a crucial point because patriotism and nationalism frequently get coded as apolitical. And it's the coding of patriotism and nationalism as apolitical or nonpolitical that underwrites a form of attack on the method of protest. So to the extent that the anthem ritual is apolitical, disrupting the ritual will always be seen as an inappropriate intrusion of politics into sport. So, Abe, you've written a lot about Kaepernick's actions being part of a long line of athlete protests. Uh, Who were some of those people that came before him? Athletes have always used moments of patriotic ritual to express dissent. So, um, of course, the most famous example of this is John Carlos and Tommy Smith at the 1968 Mm -hmm. Olympics. Mm -hmm. It's probably the image of them uh, on the Olympic podium is probably um, the one of the most um, famous images in the in the history of sport. These individuals are often reduced in media culture to the idea of individuals who are willing to use sports as a platform. Mm -hmm. And I think that in many ways the platform argument is true. They're celebrities. They're famous people. They've got um, uh, lots of eyeballs on them. right? But patriotic symbolism, I think, provides an opportunity – not just to think about sports as a platform, but uh, sport as an opportunity to reveal the distance between the nation's principles and the nation's practices. Protest is a matter, I think, of disrupting our symbolic routines, a matter of introducing important questions to ordinary practices that are often taken for granted. And I think that we like to confer virtue upon those who commit to that disruption at great personal Mm, peril. mm Right. So athletes who protest do something remarkably courageous. They criticize Athens mm-hmm. in front of Athenians. So they criticize America in front of Americans. And where does America like to think of itself as most American? At a football game. Right. You know, we just came off of the, the second year of the, the women's march. And there's you know, been been instances of people voluntarily coming together. And so I think that there's perhaps some distinction to be drawn to the, the fact that Kaepernick and these other athletes are, are, are on the job. What effect, if any, do you, do you see that having on, on their, their actions? I cannot tell you how glad I am that you asked me this question. Um, because the recognition that athletes are on the job is often used as the ground from which to criticize the protesters. There are two things, I think, that are really important. Two things that I want to recognize as a, res- as a result of this development. One is that when athletes are engaged in labor disputes, um, we are... We are often inclined to see this as millionaires arguing with billionaires. That's how athlete pro-sports labor disputes get read. And to some extent, that's true. It is sometimes millionaires arguing with billionaires, right? Millionaire players arguing with billionaire owners. But athletic careers are very short. And most athletes, most especially in the NFL, only play a handful of years, one or two years if they even make the team at all. And so professional athlete 
precarity and vulnerability are very hard to see, but it's there. What I want to see is athletes overcoming petty differences like which team they play for, what city they live in, right? What beef they have with some other player that they knew in college, right? I want to see, I want to see players overcome petty differences in the service, right, of uh, a labor consciousness, right? And so I think that's that's a that's an important thing. It's a har- much harder case to make. I mean, that's puncturing that that impression, right? That millionaires and billionaires are arguing with each other can be very difficult. That I do want to push back a little bit on the idea that the women's march or more traditional forms of voluntary activism are different in kind Mm. than the NFL Mm -hmm. protests. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is absolutely essential to understanding the NFL protests and trying to make sense of them is that activist cultures are dynamic and not static, right? So the way that a protest protest looks at any particular moment is not ultimately right what that protest movement or social movement was or will mm-hmm. become. And so I really think it's important not to think of the women's march as one kind of protest and the NFL uh, and the NFL protests as a different kind, but instead to really think hard about how we can understand their interconnectedness and similarities with respect to a vision of the world, with respect to a notion of equality. Mm-hmm. Right. And to try to understand the interconnectedness of these different kinds of, I think, activist cultures that have emerged in the last few years. Right. Right. So do you think that that um, Kaepernick and and those who um, have followed him were successful in 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 making their their points? Yeah. So I think that the answer there is yes, but I can understand those who say no. And so the difference turns really on what your metric for success is. So one could argue that as soon as a single other player joined Colin Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick was a success. As soon as Eric Reed kneeled down next to him, what Colin Kaepernick did was a success because he altered the consciousness of another citizen, right? Um, His purpose, Kaepernick's purpose, it seems to me, was to raise consciousness, but he did way more than that, right? He encouraged others to express their consciousness. Uh, By the middle of September 2016, as we've already uh, talked about, um, Kaepernick was a at least a, a success in terms of cultural virality, right? Um, but I want to keep Kaepernick's actual on-the-ground activism in mind. It's one of the things that I think I'll, right, I remember when, when, when Kaepernick first started protesting, there were a number of really sort of angry critics, right, who, who in addition to saying protest on your own time, would say things like, oh, this is, here's this millionaire athlete who doesn't like the way he's being treated. Why doesn't he put his money where his mouth is? Well, Kaepernick did put his money where his mouth is. I mean, not only is he out of the NFL, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he essentially has been blacklisted. Right. How do you think history will look back on Kaepernick and the, the impact that he's had? Right. So it's true that the problem of police violence and accountability got lost in the shuffle about free speech Right, debates mm-hmm. about free speech and angry mm-hmm. screeds about patriotism. But that, it seems to me, is a limited metric of success. I keep returning to the idea of cultures of activism because it captures for me a kind of historical perspective. The NFL protests will ultimately pass if they haven't already passed, just like 1968 mm-hmm. passed mm-hmm. and Muhammad Ali got his, got his titles back. Mm-hmm. Right. But remember that as much as Ali is seen, Muhammad Ali is seen as a righteous citizen of the world now, he was demonized and vilified in the 1960s and 1970s. I'm not saying that Kaepernick is going to be lighting the Olympic torch anytime Mm -hmm. soon. 
But I am saying that as history marches forward, it sort of plays tricks on our memory. And perhaps as we observe where the culture of activism generated by the NFL goes in the coming months and years, we will come to see Kaepernick and his cohorts as a kind of inflection point in the nation's history. Well, Abe, thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Democracy Works. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, well, so we're back. Um, Michael and uh, Chris are back, and we're uh, kind of sitting here reflecting on uh, what Abe had to say. And, uh, Michael, you were hearing Abe in terms of, um, you know, the question that Jenna asked about whether or not this movement was successful, and and your reaction was how it uh, reflected again or once again the the – the power of the of the Trump message and the tra- power of him to kind of subvert all these issues to his own agenda. Yeah, well, I'd say actually it came up for me earlier in the interview because uh, almost right from the start, uh, Abe talked about how polarized it became because of Donald Trump's uh, intrusion into into the issue, and it, it just had me thinking that this, like so many other things in in American life today becomes about the president. And he's very good at doing that, Mm -hmm. at inserting himself into something and having it become about him. And the cost of that here, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, is that, you know, it becomes about the flag. It becomes about whether or not the protest itself is okay. And what gets lost is the the subject of the uh, protest in the first place, what they're protesting for. And I think Abe made some really interesting points there about how uh, the relative success of the protest or not can't really be identified right now, that you don't know, uh, well, what was he, he, he was saying, for example, that you know, it's obvious that it raised the consciousness of some of the athletes around him. And that's a very insightful way of looking at it, I thought. And uh, you know, and I was thinking when he was talking about it, about some of these high school players, for example, that mm-hmm. have decided to protest. And that's that's a powerful effect. And what um, what Abe was arguing is that all those um, responses are simply ways of um, destroying the power of the protest. It's it's if you don't have tension. Um, you don't have a protest. And if you um, accept the terms that Trump and a lot of other critics um, gave or said, you know, here's how we're going to cordon off this, uh, this protest. If you accept any of those, you have almost by definition destroyed the power of the protest. Yes, I think that's, I think that's all true. I mean, of course, keep in mind that had the president chosen not to say anything about it at Alabama, in Alabama that day. The protests might have gone on. The other thing I want to, that I really took away from Abe was, <laughs> you know, this idea of success. Um, was the protest successful? You know, I think it is important to recognize that uh, Colin Kaepernick, you know, doesn't have an NFL career anymore. And he is, by all accounts, still a very good NFL quarterback. And there's a lot of positions that have been filled since his protest that he has not been able to to uh, to get. They, they've been unavailable to him. And so 
the other thing I think that we need to recognize with respect to protest in general is that this tension that, that you are forced to feel is present in the person who's doing the protesting as well. They have to um, figure out where they stand with respect to this reform radical question. And they have to figure, and they have to accept the idea that no matter what happens, they, whether, no matter how successful their protest is, they are putting themselves out there in terms of their, um, you know, how they're regarded in the culture, how they're regarded in terms of their, um, their livelihood, and, you know, in terms of a lot of people, including Dr. King, their, their physical safety and their lives. Yes, I, th- I thought that was actually a really interesting, really important point that he made, which was that, you know, these athletes have a short playing time. Uh, they're putting their health at risk. We know more about that every single day. Uh, this is not a risk-free action on their part. It's not just that they're rich and pampered and taking advantage of their position, but rather they really are putting themselves out there. And and once the president became involved in it, it pushed every other athlete, every other football player anyway, to have to make a decision. Right. One thing I am struck with uh Listening to the interview and and thinking about this whole NFL protest is uh, how complex democracy is and that it's not simply about voting. Right. Protest has a vital role to play in in a democracy. And if nothing else, Colin Kaepernick's action uh, reminded us of that fundamental fact. It does. And and throughout this podcast, I hope that we're going to be looking for different ways to Explore topics that are important to democracy, that to move us away from the idea that, you know, it's just about it's just about voting or it's just about offering your opinion in a public opinion poll or and to um, disabuse us all of the notion that this is easy. That's why we call it democracy works. I want to thank Abe Khan. I want to thank Jenna Spinelli for um, for a really good interview. Um, I want to thank all our vast hordes of listeners who have found this podcast and do just think it's terrific. Uh, I want to encourage you all to to uh, find us on social media. The McCourtney Institute is doing really interesting stuff if we if I do say so myself and uh, want you want to encourage you to be part of it to get to get back to us about how what you thought of this and uh, who you'd like to hear us talk to and what kind of topics you'd like to see us bring up in the, in the future. Do you think the podcast is trending now? As we speak, it is trending.